Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Around the holidays, family stories sometimes surface when we gather together. In my family, we talk about Grandma Joyce and how she rode a motorcycle. Very cool. Or Great Granddaddy Willie and how he scrimped and saved for long after the Great Depression was over. Bay Curious listener Becca Gallardi recently heard one from her grandmother that she hadn't heard before about how her family was forced from their California home during World War II. It was it was sort of with that, wait, why did you have to move across town kind of thing? And then she said, oh, it was because we were Italians. And then we kept prompting her with questions to say, what do you mean it was because you were Italians? In the early 1940s, as more than 100,000 Japanese Americans were being sent to incarceration camps, other ethnic groups were also being targeted. About 10,000 Italian citizens living in California were forced to relocate. We'd all heard so much about Japanese internment growing up, and I think we were all just so surprised that this had happened to this whole other population of people. Becca and her husband wanted to know more, so they wrote to Bay Curious to find out how this bit of family history fits into the California textbooks. What types of restrictions were placed on Italian-Americans during World War II, and why don't more people know about it? Today on Bay Curious, we're doing a deep dive into what Italians experienced in California during World War II, and how it was different here than the rest of the country. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Producer Pauline Bartoloni picks up the story from here. To start investigating this question about how Italians were treated in California during World War II, 
we went straight to the source. Grandma. Our question asker, Becca Gulardi's grandma, that is. Well, my name is Laura Neri Gulardi. I'm 90 years old. I was born and grew up in Santa Cruz, California. Laura Gulardi now lives in Salinas. It was her father, Quinto Neri, who came to California in 1911 from Tuscany in northern Italy. He was one of millions of Italians who came to the U.S. for a better life. Many stayed in urban centers like New York City, but others ventured farther to California, becoming fishermen, working in agriculture, and the wine industry. And he came at age 17 because they were starving. It was a large family. He knew some people in San Francisco who sponsored him, and so he went to work in Half Moon Bay. Laura's dad farmed Brussels sprouts and built a life for himself. He bought some land and a house. But then the Second World War hit, and Italy declared war on the United States. Suddenly, Laura's dad went from starting to achieve a middle-class life to being labeled enemy alien. This war is a new kind of war. It is different from all other wars of the past, The president of the United States at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, gave military commanders sweeping rights to protect the homeland after the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. That's what led to the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans. But since Italy and Germany had also declared war on the U.S., new restrictions applied to their citizens living here. We shall give up conveniences and modify the routine of our lives if our country asks us to do so. Italian citizens had to register as enemy aliens, and many were subject to an 8 p.m. curfew. They couldn't travel more than five miles away from home. People's houses were searched for so-called contraband, things like cameras and radios. People who violated the new rules could be arrested. Remembering that the common enemy seeks to destroy every home and every freedom in every part of our land. Italians on the West Coast were hit hardest by the new restrictions. The military forced Italian citizens, mostly living on the Pacific coastline, to find new homes. Defense commanders wanted to protect the western United States from an enemy invasion, so they created prohibited zones where enemy aliens could not live or work. It included a sliver of land along the Pacific Ocean and some inland areas around military bases. Laura's father had to relocate. It had a big impact on my father because he was uh, farming rented land that was in the restricted area. So he had to give up his farming. The fact that he felt that he would not do anything against the United States and still had to be evacuated was hard. Laura's family found a new place to rent. Ironically, on the other side of town that was not within the prohibited zone. Laura was only seven years old at the time, so she didn't understand much about the stresses her parents were feeling. Parents did not discuss a lot of things with their children. I know they were upset because they had to leave their home, but they didn't talk about it. They thought that Mussolini's Navy might attack the West Coast. 
course, Mussolini didn't have much of a navy. Author Lawrence Destasi helped write a book on Italian-Americans during World War II. He says the West Coast general, John DeWitt, used his military powers in a much more draconian way than generals in other parts of the nation. It was DeWitt who commanded the incarceration of tens of thousands of Japanese Americans and the relocation of Italians on the West Coast. On the East Coast, Italians did have travel restrictions, but they weren't subject to curfew or mass relocation, says Destasi. The paranoia exhibited by the West Coast general, General John DeWitt, he was terrified that under his watch, the West Coast was going to be invaded. Um, it never was, of course. It was partly hysteria, partly overkill, I think. Because of DeWitt's relocation orders, Italians all around the Bay Area were in limbo, including thousands in the city of Alameda and Pittsburgh. To those who had to move, the dividing line between what was restricted or not seemed pretty arbitrary. If you lived west of San Pablo Avenue, you had to move. If you lived east of San Pablo Avenue, you didn't have to worry about it. Al Brizzoni grew up in Richmond on a 40-acre lettuce farm. He's now 92, but still remembers being 11 years old when the relocation orders came. It split his family up. He and his two younger siblings moved with his parents to Oakland. But his siblings, who were old enough to live by themselves and American-born, stayed in Richmond and worked the farm. On weekends, my brothers would pick us up and we'd go back to where I was growing up. Other Italians didn't have the money to rent homes nearby after being forced to relocate. Many moved in with friends or lived in substandard migrant housing. Brizzoni thought the whole ordeal was a big government mistake. Most of the people came to this country because they were poor in Europe and they had a chance to accomplish something here. And, and that's why and they would never, never go fight against the country because they were doing so well here. Italians who worked on the coast also suffered. 80% of California's fishermen were Italian, and in 1942, their boats were seized by the Coast Guard. They were not allowed to fish on coastal waters. That is a story that Ken Borelli knows personally. It happened to his uncle, Girolamo Contatore. We called him Uncle Jim, but his name was Girolamo, and he... He lived in San Francisco and was a crab fisherman. And they would fish out of Fisherman's Wharf and go all up and down Northern California. After losing access to his vessel and the water during the war, Borelli's uncle made a wooden replica of the boat. And Borelli still has it. It's called the Teresa. You could see this back here. He wrote that. The model boat looks handcrafted with love and an expert eye. It's about two feet wide with several deck levels. This wire is very rusty. These are nails. He was a very meticulous person. Borelli wishes he could have asked his uncle how he felt back then. His family never told him the details about whether his uncle was compensated or ever saw the boat again. But Borelli says the boat replica shows his uncle had idle hands and a mind that needed to be occupied. Well, it was a yearning. 
as a yearning to go back to sea. Italian Americans didn't just endure forced relocation and lose property. Hundreds more were sent to prison camps, too. There, some slept in makeshift shelters, like tents, and were held along with Japanese and German detainees. A lot of people mistakenly assumed that Japanese Americans were the only ones affected by national security fears. UC Santa Cruz historian Alice Yang says Italians and Germans living in the U.S. also had their civil liberties infringed upon. People were imprisoned for being Italian journalists, teaching the Italian language, or simply being veterans of World War One. A lot of the assumptions about, you know, whether someone might be a security threat were based on prejudicial views of ethnicity. People who were part of organizations that were seen as promoting Italian pride. So in the pre-war period, that wasn't considered dangerous or subversive, but in the wartime era, right, having ethnic pride, if your pride was associated with an Axis power, could land you on one of these lists. To be clear, De Stasi says a good portion of Italian immigrants in the U.S. at the time were supporters of Benito Mussolini, the Nazi-allied fascist leader of Italy. They may not have been in favor of what he did, but they liked that he was creating a new image for Italy. Because they felt that he had finally put Italy on the map. He had gained some respect for Italy throughout the world. But that didn't mean that they were going to engage in any kind of anti-American activities. High-profile Italian immigrants were also prey to the wartime security measures. New York-based opera singer Ezio Pinza was incarcerated without charge for three months. Baseball Hall of Famer Joe DiMaggio's mother, who lived in San Francisco, was arrested. Imprisoned Italians were moved from camp to camp around the country, many winding up in Fort Missoula, Montana. Then, quite sharply, the American government changed its tune about Italians. In October 1942, Attorney General Francis Biddle gave a speech touting the contributions of Italians in the United States Army. Into the war against the Axis, they have sent their own sons. These Americans of Italian ancestry will help Italy again to become a free nation. By the end of the month, the restrictions on Italian citizens would end. To those who are affected by this change, I say tonight... You have met the test. Your loyalty to the democracy, which has given you this chance, you have proved, and proved well. Make the most of it. See to it that all Italians remain loyal. Italians who were already in U.S. prisons stayed in camps for another year. But the relocated families in California, like Al Brazzoni and Laura Gallardi, they got to go home. In total, they'd endured five months of a relocation order and about eight months of curfews and travel restrictions. Somebody finally realized they made a mistake and they sent everybody home because here they had the parents 
had to move away and they were drafting all their children. Laura Gallardi says her dad lost his Brussels sprout farm near Santa Cruz, and it was hard to start all over again. After they were able to go home, uh, he never did go back to the farming. He went to work uh, for others in the agricultural industry. I, as I look back, I think that we were much luckier than the Japanese who were encamped and lost everything. Many Italian immigrants in California were like Laura Gallardi's parents. They didn't feel a need to talk about hardships imposed on them to their kids or grandkids. But historian Alice Yang says there are important things to learn from this history. For one, not to judge whether someone is dangerous based on their ethnicity. Especially when people are afraid, it is very easy for them to have irrational fears of entire groups, right? Based on race, religion, ethnicity. Americans let wartime fears subvert civil rights during World War II, Yang says. And that's a lesson to learn from and never repeat. That story was reported by Pauline Bartoloni. Big thanks to Becca Gillardi and James King for asking the question, and to historian Steve Fox for his expertise on this story. Bay Curious is produced in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. This episode was made by Pauline Bartoloni, Christopher Beale, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, Maha Sanad, Bianca Taylor, Holly Kernan, and the entire KQED family. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.